Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome in this morning and happy July 4th uh, to everyone. I want to share a couple of uh, quick announcements with you this morning, and then we'll get uh, started with our worship. So uh, first thing, uh, we have no kids worship today because of the holiday, so everybody is, is here uh, worshiping together. Uh, next Sunday, we've got a couple of events going on we want to want you to be aware about. The first is there is a baby shower for Akeem and Monica Means. There they are back there. Uh, they have, you can see their, their beautiful daughter, Aaliyah. Well, there's another beautiful one on the way. And so we're going to be having a baby shower for them next Sunday, immediately after the service. Uh, it will be in the youth room. Uh, guys and girls are invited to come. And no big gifts needed. We just need diapers and wipes. And everyone who's had children said, yeah. That's exactly what we need, uh, what they need. So uh, also next Sunday, uh, we have a, a opportunity if you want to know more about joining the church. We have a class that we do at the pastor's house called Discover Gateway. It's after the worship service. There's a good group already, but so we do have a few spots left. And so you can register online at uh, the Gateway website, gatewaybaptist.com. Also next Sunday, because we're doing everything all at one time is that uh, we have Vacation Bible School. And so we're doing it differently this year. Where instead of having the week-long program, we're going to do it over the next several Sundays where the kids will go and be in Vacation Bible School from 9 o'clock until the end of the service or at 12. Uh, so uh, this is for the next five Sundays. We encourage you to come. We encourage you to invite friends to come. This is going to be a really awesome experience. Two weeks uh, on, June, on July 13th, we have... Uh, the men's, or the, men, the men's group, the men are going to the Biscuits game on July 13th. If you want to register for that, uh, go sign up at the blog. And we also, uh, one of the great things about being an elder-led church is that we, as elders, uh, share a lot of the responsibilities of sharing the flock. And today we're going to hear from Rick Steen, who is one of our elders here. And so we're excited to get his perspective on the word. So to call to worship this morning, and please stand, I want to read for us Psalm 73. 25 through 28. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. Let's worship together. Oh 
Come with trumpet sound 
pray together. Thank you, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Thank you so much for all the ways that you bless us and love us as we sing together in that song. And Lord, as we come to pray now, we are grateful that this salvation, this redemption is not just for us individually. It is not just for Gateway Baptist Church, but it is for the world. And so these prayer requests engage our hearts to think outward, to think about praying for your kingdom to come and your will to be done in these specific ways. So, Lord, we thank you for our young adults ministry and the community that you've raised up there. And we ask that you would bless this ministry, that you would continue to build hearts that want to serve you in these transition moments between college and career, between being single and being married, or staying single between being married and being married with children. There's so many different ways that this life can go. We pray that you would help our young adults see you in the midst of that, continue to turn to you and your redemption, and God, to love one another well. We pray across our city. We're so thankful for Pastor John and his ministry to the Miztex here. We pray for continued blessing in that community, that the gospel would reach these people and that they would turn and reach their families and that that gospel would continue to spread throughout that community. We pray for Pastor Mike Cobb over at Delray United Methodist. We pray as he continues to reach and to minister there in Delray that you would give him a bless, blessing knowledge of your will and your grace and that he would preach the word faithfully and that you would raise up many saints there to love their neighbors well. We pray for our city. We pray for Mayor Reed and our new interim police chief, Ramona Harris, and the authority that you've given them to manage our city. God, we pray for grace for them. We ask that they would submit their lives to you and that they would seek the good of the people here as they tackle and, and try to deal with the many ways that sin creeps in and causes strife in a community. Thank you that you've put them over us. We pray for their blessing now. And as we extend our minds outward and we think about global missions and the work that you're doing in the Loro Cocha village in the Amazon basin, thank you for the missionaries, Felipe, Jenna, and Julia, as they've continued to minister to those people there and that you're starting to bear fruit you're seeing one man, Aldo, who wants to be baptized. Open the doors for him to be baptized and for that baptism to be a spark that continues to build the community of Christ there. And give us hearts, Lord, in our community here where things are just easier for us as believers than they are for people across the world. Give us hearts to continue to pray for our brothers and sisters in these difficult places and dark places that the gospel would continue to go forward. And Lord, as we give out of, our, uh, out of what you've given us in terms of our finances and our resources, we, play, we pray that you would bless those things for the accomplishment of your kingdom and that you would give us cheerful hearts. And finally, for Rick, as he comes to share for this morning, thank you, Lord, for preparing him, not just this week, but for all of the ways that you've structured his life and times to come to Montgomery a few years ago to stay in Montgomery with his family longer than anticipated 
We're so thankful for their family and their blessing on this church. And we pray that you would speak through him this morning, that you would give us attentive ears and attentive hearts. We pray all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Before we actually get into the text, Grady to ask if I would um, share a little bit about a mission trip I had a couple of weeks ago to El Salvador. And so, we got a slide? So my son's back there today, so I get to pick on him. He's, he's running the slides. So, thanks, Joe. Um, so, a couple of weeks ago, uh, this, this team of us, um, why am I the only one not wearing a hat, by the way? I just, I'm the one who's bald. Um, so, so that was a picture taken. I pulled it off. And uh, so a good friend of mine, Mark, Mark uh, had been a, a missionary in Honduras for about 11 years. And uh, when we were in Tennessee, we partnered with him in his, his ministry there in Honduras. And now he's working with a Training Leaders International, which was born out of Bethlehem Baptist Church, if you're familiar with John Piper. And so they have that mission organization, and the, the goal of TLI is to go and to train pastors and, and other teachers. Greg here is in the middle. I uh, just got to know him. He came on the trip with us to be part of our team. He's an elder in California, and uh, he's, a, uh, he's a, I think, a middle school teacher. He teaches math and uh, English. And so we just had a, a great time of bonding, encouraging each other, praying for one another. Uh, next slide, Joe. This is where we were. We, fell, we flew into uh, San Salvador, and then we ended up, uh, drove about two hours to a little town, or it's not really, it's actually the second largest city in El Salvador, San Miguel, and that's where the church was. Next slide. This is the material we covered. We, six days of instruction, uh, 21 hours in the classroom, and uh, we covered, this is one of nine lessons. So what we did is we kind of laid the foundation. So this is a three-year project. So the plan is to go back three times a year and build on each lesson of instruction. So what we did is we first taught about uh, what it is to know God. We talked about his sovereignty, his goodness, his wisdom. And then we talked about the, the Trinity. How do we know God through the Trinity? And then talked about what that is. And then we talked about scripture, right? We taught them, hey, scripture is sufficient, it's trustworthy, it's reliable. We talked about this idea of the diversity of scripture, how God brought the scripture together over thousands of years with different writers, but also the unity of scripture in terms of how it's unified in the gospel, how it all points to Christ. And then we closed it out with knowing ourselves. And one of the lessons was, which is applicable for us this morning, is that God gave pastors and teachers their gift to the church. And the purpose of that is to equip you. This morning, as, as I'm preaching, as I'm sharing the gospel, the purpose of that is to equip you for the ministry. It's number one, foremost. I'll be careful. I get to start preaching on just this. We won't get to the text. But it's in my heart this morning because it's so fresh. And that is the purpose of coming together on Sunday mornings is to learn the word so that we can grow in our walk with the Lord. Correct? but also to take what God has given us so that we can go out and do what God has called us to do, which is be salt and light in this world. So that's what we did. We gave them this foundation. Uh, we, we had a great time. Next slide, Joe. Uh, that's the pastor we stayed with, pastor and his wife, Pastor Hobe and uh, Elsie. Wonderful couple. Talk about hospitality. 
I, am, I don't think I've ever experienced hospitality like I did uh, while I was there. They opened their home, uh, the cooking, everything. They were just so gracious. Um, they have a daughter. She's, I think, 17. She gave up her room for us. Not, probably that wasn't a choice, but anyway. Um, anyway. Um, but uh, just, just a wonderful time. Love, they both are so gracious. They love the Lord. And, and, and Job's desire, it's really hope, right, in, in, in Spanish. Job's desire is to reach out to pastors around the region to equip them. Because there's a lot of pastors that are working in places you've never heard of, little towns. And what he wants to do is equip them for the work of the ministry. And so his heart is to reach out. And it doesn't mean, what, what this looks like is he's not reaching out to people, pastors who are necessarily in his denomination. Um, he's reaching out. There's a lot of, there's a, a huge Pentecostal influence in El Salvador. And he's reaching out to these uh, pastors who Pentecostal. We visit some of those churches. And we're just so encouraged by what God is doing. So that, and that's the name of the church, La Iglesia Cristiana por la Gracia de Dios. And so that, that, that's the church that he's part of. They have a school there. He started the school. The purpose of the school was, he told us, he said, the reason I started the school is because I wanted to use the children to get to the parents. And what they do in that school is they teach English, right? And how many of the parents, and most of these, <coughs> excuse me, most of these parents are somewhat well-to-do because they can afford to send their kids to the schools. But these parents are hearing, the kids are hearing the gospel, and the parents are coming to faith. We got to hear a couple of testimonies of how God used the school to bring the parents to saving grace. So just so encouraging. Next slide. This is uh, the whole class, uh, men and women, all, the, all of them. And a uh, good bunch of, wonderful bunch of people who just were soaking it up. You're talking about soaking it up. They just wanted to hear more and more and more. Um, and I was also really amazed at their own Bible knowledge. They have been trained well. Next slide. This was my class. Uh, the guy on the far, you're looking on the right here. Um, incredible. Uh, Eduardo, he is an, was my interpreter, my translator, because I don't speak Spanish. I'm from Tennessee. I can barely do English. Um, so, um, so Eduardo, uh, just amazing story about how God used him. Um, he was, he was, uh, came over with his parents, they weren't uh, citizens, and he grew up, he got in trouble with the law, actually was arrested and deported later as a teenager, and through that came to faith in Christ, knows English and Spanish, I mean, unbelievable, he just goes back and forth, and he was my interpreter. We got to talk a lot and, and just hear how God has been working in his life. Next slide. Okay, one last slide here. Um, the guy on the very front there, in the, in the, that is navy blue, I'm assuming, I'm colorblind. Um, he um, is one of the pastors we met. So what we would do during the week is we would go in the morning, usually an hour drive, hour and a half, whatever, and we would meet with pastors in these small communities. And in this, we got to meet uh, Leo. Incredible story, came from Cambodia. If you're familiar at all with the history of Central America, it is a rough history. El Salvador was in a civil war from 1982 to 92. And usually when I was talking to these pastors, I'd ask them, tell me about what that was like. 75,000 people killed uh, in that war. Um, you know Cambodia, right? The FARC, you're familiar with them and, and the rebels. And his dad, when he was 14 years old, around that age, was killed um, by some, some, some rebels. 
And as we were talking, he said he went in a different direction in terms of he became, he wanted to be part of the, the rebels and a bunch of other stuff happened. But uh, he tells a story. Our question was always this. How did you come to faith? And he tells a story. And a lot of them use our experience. He said, I was sitting there. I was with my boss. He's called the Hefe, right? And they're sitting there talking. And they're in this bar. And some guy, by, some guy walks into the bar. Walks up to the counter, asks questions, came over. And Hefe, the, the boss, is sitting right next to him. The guy pulls a gun and shoots him right there, kills him on the spot. This, he's a teenager. He said, I ducked under the table and I began to think, just racing through my mind, what, what is this all, you know, what am I going to do with my life? And God got hold of his life and transformed him and he moved him. He had to leave Cambodia. Part of it was for, for security reasons and came to El Salvador, planted a church. But the story's not over there. Him and his wife were at a conference. They went to a conference as they're training. They're coming back. When they came back, when they're coming back, they were in a horrible bus accident. He showed us his arm, just a scar. It was just amazing. And he said, um, we, we survived. And then he made the comment, he goes, but we lost our son. Well, I was thinking, well, the son must have been in the bus with them, right? He wasn't. His son had had health conditions and problems and whatnot. And the son, when he heard about his parents in the car accident, had a response. And they were in a different hospital recovering and found out that their 12-year-old had died. And they found that out. And he, they obviously, a whole lot of things transpired. But he, the, 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 the hospital had to take her by ambulance so she could attend her son's funeral and then go back to the hospital for another month. And as he was telling this story, he said, I was so, I was so devastated. He said, I hit a depression like you wouldn't believe. He said, I didn't go to church for two years. That's how painful it was. Why, God? Why? And he said, and we went back to church and the people in the church were telling us that the death of our son was our fault. And at that point, I was listening, I was the translation, he's speaking in Spanish, and Mark, who's a good friend of mine, just broke down in tears. Because Mark struggles with depression. I don't know the people who really struggle with that, by the way. Mark just, just started crying. He couldn't talk. I said, Mark, what's wrong? He goes, I can't imagine, because of his own experience, I go back to church after all of this, and then the people are saying that that's our fault. And he said, but somehow, he said, God brought it. He said, I started looking around for other help, other encouragement. He said, I found Pastor Hope. And Pastor Hope encouraged me. And he said, that's why I'm back in ministry and doing what God has called me to do. So you know what? Stories like these just profoundly shape people, right? The gospel, what God is doing in all parts of the world. And why do I share this? You say, you're taking a lot of time on this. Well, here's why. Because I've always had a passion for missions. That's my heartbeat. And when we talk this morning about covetousness, thou shalt not covet Here's my concern about the church in America. Is that we have so, much, so many things we want to hold on to, we don't want to think about going. And we're called to go. We're called to go. That's what God has called us to. It may be right here in Montgomery, but you better be going. And my prayer is also for some of the children, as I've prayed before, to the ends of the earth. If God would take every, all five of my children and send them to who knows where for the glory of the gospel, I would be on cloud nine. And I hate flying. I'm in the Air Force. I don't like flying. 
but I just, just love to hear what God is doing through mission work and what God is doing around the world. So just wanted to share that with you. I hope you'll continue to pray. We're going to go back, Lord willing. We can't go in October because of our schedules, but uh, well, I can't. But my, I'm planning on hopefully, Lord willing, going in, in February. And just pray that uh, God would continue to use us in that context. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your truth and your goodness. Thank you for what we've sung this morning. You're so good to us, Lord. Thank you for the gospel, and I thank you for how the gospel has gone forth into other parts of the world and transformed lives. Lord, this morning we're here to, to hear your word, hear from you, not me. And so I pray, Lord, that as this text is proclaimed, that God, you would be exalted and glorified, that I would hide behind you and the word, and that its truth would go do its work in the hearts and lives of those who are here this morning. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we come to the last of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet. And it's not lost on me this morning that I'm preaching this text on July 4th. And you say, well, what does that have to do with thou shalt not covet? I'm glad you asked, right? Today is Independence Day. Independence from what? Those terrible British oppressors. Ah, I mean, I'm in Air Command Staff College. We get a lot of students come through, and I love, we, on 4th of July, we like to give our British counterparts a hard time. Thank you. We're free from you guys. So we, we, we celebrate this day because we think we can live in how we want, how we choose in our lives. And our identity is often wrapped up in what we call the American. That's it. American dream. It's the American dream, am I right? That's why people flock to come to these shores. And the dream encompasses the idea that no matter what status of life you come from, you can attain your version of success through upward mobility. And how do we typically define success in our culture? We define it based on what? Your, the position you have, the level of education you have, or what you own. And many other things, but we, we measure it typically in terms of our status in life. And don't get me wrong, I don't want you to hear me say that I'm not grateful for the freedoms that we have. I'm very grateful. But the liberties we have been given are often an opportunity to feed our sinful desires. And the church is not immune to this. We live, we eat, we drink, we breathe the American culture that says you can be anything you want. And so we live in that context, and what we do is we think in those contexts. Whether it's education, whether it's money, whether it's homes, whether it's cars, and don't get me wrong, I like fancy cars. I do. An Audi A8, 2021. We'll stop there. Anyway... We live in a culture, right? A culture that is constantly bombarding with us with this message that says what? You need fill in the blank and what it is that makes you, that will make you what? Happy. Happy. That's our thinking. That's our process. And God, what does God says? What does he tell us? God says, be content with what I've given you. Amen. These are the competing values at work. God's truth and the world's lies. But it's not just the culture, brothers and sisters. It's also our flesh. Our flesh believes the lies of covetousness. What are those lies? If I had a better paying job, 
life would be so much easier. Why can't my wife look like that? No laugh there, huh? Better not. My husband doesn't, my husband, man, why doesn't he do for me what my neighbor or my friend's husband does for her? What about that car would make my life better or my life would be complete if I were just married. I want to be married. Brothers and sisters, these thoughts and a thousand like them are not because of the culture, but from a heart that is covetous. Now, I just want you to stop and think, what is it today that you want more than anything? Don't answer that out loud. That's rhetorical. But think about it in terms of who we are. Our heart, as John Calvin says, are idol factories. We're constantly wanting more and more and more. And when we get to Exodus 20, 17, the very last commandment, the very last commandment says, you shall not covet. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to that passage, because it just doesn't just stop there. Turn your Bibles to Exodus 20, verse 17. Look at the text. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor. So what is covetousness? Covetousness can be defined as a sinful craving or desire for something that belongs to someone else or an intense desire for things that do not belong to us. And ultimately, covetousness is the sin of idolatry. We read in Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. The sin of idolatry is a violation of the first commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before me. It is idolatry when we say, I must have. I must have, I deserve. Those words are an indication of the heart. But I do want to qualify something here. I want to qualify and say, here's what covetous is not. Covetous is not having normal desires. We are all born with desires, correct? Each one of us have desires. Think about it. It's normal to have a desire to, to be married. That's a good thing. It's okay to desire sex, sexual intimacy within marriage. It's good to desire to have children. It's good to desire food. You're not thinking that, I hope, right now. Right? Nobody's thinking about lunch. Now you're thinking about it. Think about this in terms of this desire. These desires are good, right? Desire for food and what it keeps us alive. Sexual intimacy brings bond, this, this bonding in marriage. These are good things. But what, what, when does it become covetousness? It becomes it when we say, that is what I have to have. And my question is, is why is this sin listed among all of these other sins? Because when I come to the Bible, I think often to myself, why did the Holy Spirit put the list in that order? And here's the reason I think covetous is last in this list. It's there to remind us that this sin is the root of all other sins against our neighbor. Covetousness is the root 
of murder, of adultery, of stealing, and of lying. On the surface, we know that these things are sinful acts. But what's behind them? Covetousness is found in the heart. The sin of covetousness, brothers and sisters, can be hidden for a long time. And it's in all of us. And we can hide it, and we can hide it, and we can hide it, but eventually at times it comes out in horrific acts. Consider for a moment. Murder. We have several examples in Scripture of that, right? But the one that comes to mind is the story of Ahab and Naboth. Remember that story? Ahab, Naboth's vineyard, right? And Ahab wants the vineyard. And he can't have the vineyard because Naboth said, I'm not selling it. So what what does Ahab do? He goes home and he pouts. The king is pouting. And Jezebel comes along and she says, what are you doing? You're the king. Right? I'll take care of that for you. She has Naboth put in front of a jury and convicted of things he never did so that he would be put to death. What about adultery? We don't have to go very far for that, do we? David, hero of the faith, longing for as he's up on the top of that roof looking at Bathsheba and that covetousness that says, I have to have her. And the results to David's family were devastating. Stealing. I wanted to use maybe this story, but because of time I couldn't. But one of the most terrifying stories is the story of Achan's sin in Joshua. And the reason that sin was so devastating is because Achan hid that. And the men go back into battle against Ai, and 36 men are killed, and the nation of Israel is going, what, God, what have you done? What is going on? And God says, somebody has sinned. I told, you, I told you not to touch the devoted things. Those things which I told you to destroy, somebody has touched them. Somebody has taken them. This is no laughing matter, brothers and sisters, because they have to go all the way through and do lots and find out who it is, and finally Achan is found out, and... Joshua says, give God the glory, brother. What have you done? And Achan confesses. And what's terrifying about that whole aspect of, we say stealing, but it it was bound up in this idea of covetousness, is that he takes it and then it leads to destruction in his family because they stoned him and his family. The implications being the family knew he had taken these things. Why do I say that? Because, brothers and sisters, God takes sin seriously. He does. That's why we need the gospel. That's why we need Christ's righteousness. Of course, the last in line is that which we use to what? Cover up our covetousness. We cover up those acts. No, I didn't do it, or I didn't didn't mean to, or or, it really, it, it was somebody else's fault. So how serious is covetousness? God treats covetousness as a serious violation of his law because the first four commandments relate to our relationship to God. They apply to that relationship with God, right? The other six apply to our relationship to others. We are to love God and to 
love others. That's the great commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and then to love your neighbor as... Huh? Easy to do, isn't it? And in this, as we love God, the first priority, we will love others. But if we don't love others, we're not loving God. When we covet our neighbor's possessions, we fail to love our neighbor and therefore fail to love God. In Colossians 3.5, which we read earlier, it is named, this sin, covetous, is named among the sins of sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desires. In Romans, you have that, Joe, Romans 1.28-29, we read these words. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil. What's the next word? Covetousness. Malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, and deceit, maliciousness. That word covetousness makes the list of all these serious sins. In Ephesians, Paul writes in Ephesians 5.3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And here, Paul, what what he's doing is he's connecting The sin of covetousness to sexual immorality. Luke 12, 15, Jesus connects the sin of covetousness to material possessions. We read, and Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Why? Because your things, my things, can become ultimate. You remember the parable of the sower? Where the seed is put out? There's one seed that doesn't come up. Why doesn't it come up? Because the cares and the riches of this world choke it out. Possessions, how we steward those matters to God. How we view our possessions matter to God. So Jesus takes this sin seriously, and so should we. One author of Covetousness wrote, says, he wrote, wrote this article, I was reading the other day, and he said, through this sin, though this sin, excuse me, is a familiar acquaintance, it is no friend. It is an opportunist, opportunistic and deadly foe which grips the heart, turns the affections, occupies the mind, and unravels a life. Where there was peace, Covetousness brings hostility. Where there was love, covetousness stirs up division. And where there was contentment, it breeds complaint. We've been looking at the New City Catechism. And the New City Catechism asks the question, what does God require in the Tenth Commandment? And the answer is interesting. That we are content. That we are content. Content, not envying or representing what God has given them or us. We are content. And what is contentment? I would argue that contentment is an attitude. It's a heart attitude. Are you content where what God has given you? 
So my question this morning is, how do I know I'm coveting? How do I know that when I've stepped the line between, okay, I have these desires. I want to be married. Married's a good thing. I want to have kids. Having kids is a good thing. I want a job where I feel fulfilled. Okay, I understand that. There's a lot of things we can say are good desires. Am I right? Okay. My question is, when do you step over the line and that becomes idolatrous? That's the question. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you five ways in which I think this can happen. And not all this came from just me. It came from this little book, and this is for Jeff. I told him I'm going to do this. So we're in elders meetings, right? And we're asking questions about things that are going on in terms of the life of the body. And I usually pull out a book. I said, guys, we should read this. So Jeff, you should read this. I'm just kidding. Um, We've been trying to read some of this with our family as we've been preparing on Saturday nights as we've been preparing for our time of worship on Sunday. So I tell parents, find something as, as you think about Sunday morning. How are you preparing your children Saturday night for that? So here's the first one. Here's how we can consider whether this is covetousness. Number one, question, what is it that I want more than anything? That's the question you should ask. If you want something more than Christ, God, more than, than Him and who He is, then it's probably idolatrous. No, it is idolatrous. Matthew 6, 19-21. You're familiar with this text. Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy... And where thieves break in and steal. But what? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break and steal. And here it is. Why? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's been said that you can take somebody's checkbook and that checkbook will show show you where their heart is. It's true. Where do you spend your time? What do you do? What does your life look like as a whole? These are indications of where your heart is. I can't know your heart. No one else really around you can know your heart because of what? We can't judge motives. I can't. But the evidence of that is the fruit that it bears. Where is your heart? Second question I have for you is this. Have you hurt others to get more for yourself? Have you hurt others to get more for yourself? Well, why would that be a question to ask? Well, James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he asked this question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you don't ask. You hear what he's saying? Where do these fights, where do these contentions come from? They come from within. They're my issue. They're my problem, not somebody else's. Those are the things that I am having to deal with. And the sad thing about it is, brothers and sisters, is that we will hurt those closest to us because... We want something out of them. Marriage is a great example. Why is conflict happening in marriage oftentimes? 
done plenty of premarital counseling and marital counseling. I think about it, and it's usually this idea of she or he is not giving me what I want. And where's that coming from? I get it that there's good desires. I understand. But what typically happens is we elevate those desires to the point that says, if I don't, have, if I don't get that, I'm done. That's our attitude. We see it in the marriage. We see it in the home. Oh, kids, you're all, all the kids are here, right? Are you kids listening? Say, yeah, yeah. No, no. Um, kids, do y'all ever fight and argue? <laughs> There's one honest person in this room. She said yes. Think about this. It's true. My kids, what are y'all arguing about now? Well, I want blah, 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 and on it goes. You're good kids, I, no doubt, but. It happens. Why? Because we want. Number three. Here's a question to ask. These are the questions. Are you preoccupied with accumulating stuff? Are you preoccupied with accumulating stuff? Why that question? Well, in Luke 12, 16 through 21, Jesus tells a parable. And he said, there's a land of a rich man. The land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store up all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up for himself treasure for himself and not and is not rich toward God. Amen. If our lives consist of accumulating wealth for the sake of building our own security, we have made wealth and security an idol. I don't. I'm not going to budge on that because the American dream. I get it. I, I've, I've traveled and traveled many nations. I get it. It's a, it's a blessing to know. Hey, retirement, fill in the blank. I've got. I'm good. But I have a feeling that too much in the American life, we focus on that. We're working toward our retirement so we can respond like the rich man, which says, oh, good, I'm done, I'm there, I made it. And futility is, and God's response is, I'll take care of that, and he takes your life. That, that, that is... The American attitude. I'm not saying in this church, necessarily. But that's the attitude. I'll just, I just build it. It's okay. I got all this stuff. Look at my checking account. It's just, man, it's looking good. Looking good. Hey, can I borrow? What? That's my, that's my savings. You can't touch that. Generosity? Brothers and sisters, what are we doing? What are we living for? What are we living for? Fourth, what are you not willing, what are you unwilling to give up? What are you unwilling to give up? That's a question you need to ask. What are you unwilling to give up? You know, last week Seth mentioned the story of the rich young ruler in his sermon. And in that story, Jesus said to the rich young ruler, remember when Seth was preaching, he said, he, he says to the rich young ruler, sell what you possess, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven, and follow me. 
And all of us in this room said, I'll take you up on that deal. Yeah. Follow Jesus. That would be great. What an adventure. But back home, you have your 6,000 square foot home with your servants and all kinds of wonderful things. Maybe your nice pool. And Jesus says, go sell it all. And you go, oh, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Maybe I need to rethink this. Why? Because of what it has on the, the grip of the heart. What that is. And you know what it says? It's the saddest thing and one of the saddest statements in all of Scripture. And I hope, I don't know whatever happened to this rich, rich young ruler, but I hope he came around. But it says this in the story. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. Why? For he had great possessions. Brothers, sisters, can I say that as we think through this, a quick word if you're a parent, a quick word if you're a parent, because I'm a parent, and I'm here, this is the purpose of this, is to equip you. What are you communicating to your children with what you, with what you have? Here's, here's my concern. Here, here's my concern as a, as a parent. I don't want my children so caught up in what success is based on the definition that's given out there in the world and their things that when they get to a certain point in their life and God calls them, they, they hesitate. I, I don't. I want my children to be in a position where they're watching mom and dad and they go, it's much more joyful to follow Christ. It doesn't matter what this stuff is. And this stuff, and it's stuff, is going to go away and will mean nothing in eternity to any of us in this room. But Jesus will be everything. And I want my children to have that attitude now. That's, That's what I want. But the question I have to you parents is, how are you modeling that? Are you asking the questions, is that thing, you're asking the question to your children, is that thing what you're doing, what kind of grip does it have on your life? Is what you're doing, are you willing to let it go to follow Jesus? Because it may be good. I'm not saying it's not good, right? I'm saying it could be good, really good. But it actually can become that which they worship. And maybe the Lord's saying, look, I'm giving you this because I'm preparing you for something better. But what they have is they focus on the good and they put aside and they don't pursue Christ. Finally, last one, last one. Time. Oh, we're good. We got plenty of time, right? Lunch? What lunch? Um, Here's the question I have. What do you complain about? What do you complain about? (laughs) All right, I'm completely guilty here. Think about these things. And it's little things, right? But the little things reveal the heart. My food's not the right temperature. It's too hot. It's raining today. Why can't um, my Tennessee balls lost again? Why? We, We just like, we complain, don't we? Think about this. How did God treat complaining with Israelites? Yeah, that's exactly right. Thank you. Woo-wee. First they grumbled because they were what? Thirsty. They come into the desert, right? God's delivered them. And, oh, we don't have any water. We're thirsty. Wah, wah. Okay. All right. Here's some water. Then they get to the point where what? They're hungry. We want, we want food. I get it. I mean, if, you're, if you've been in Sinai, I've been to the Sinai Desert. It's not a place where there's a lot of food. 
there's no restaurants. Um, and so you're sitting there going, wow, what are you guys doing? You're complaining. And God was gracious. He was merciful to them. But later on, it continues to get worse in Exodus. And they said, here's what they said. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Okay. What did God do? Where has he brought you? Did you see anything that was amazing? And then, no, 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 listen to this. They're complaining and griping. And God says, okay, okay, I get it. You want meat. I'll give you meat. He gave them meat, right? Bunch of quail. Whoop. And they're eating. It says while the food was between their teeth, God struck them with a plague. Why? Because they were covetous. They wanted what they wanted. They weren't interested in glorifying God or magnifying him or serving him or trusting him. It was all about them. And so as we conclude here, I'm going to give you three quick, three quick, I promise, ways in which we can fight covetousness. Here they are. Number one, pursue contentment. Pursue contentment, which is rooted, excuse me, it's which is rooted in gratitude. Are you thankful? No, don't, don't say this out loud. This is rhetorical. Are you thankful this morning for what God has done? You know, I was thinking about that as I was, was jogging this morning. I was thinking about suffering, right? Our family has been through some tough times in the last month or two. And I'm thinking about suffering in terms of God's sovereignty, and I can't, can't help but think of the passage again and again from James. Talk about suffering. Rejoice. Rejoice. Why? Because those trials and stuff are what, what make us into what God has called us to be. And sometimes it's really hard, right? But how do I rejoice? I find the rejoicing is rooted in my confidence and love for Christ and what he's done. It's all about Christ. And Paul says that in Philippians. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation to be what? Content. Brothers and sisters, I would say in this, in, in this culture, we have a real problem with being content. Number two, trust the sovereignty and goodness of God in what you already have. Do you really believe that God is sovereign over every aspect of your life? If you do, do you also believe that in those moments that he is good? He is sovereign, which means he rules over all things, and he is good. He is good. Do you really believe that God has given you exactly what you need for right now? It's okay to ask God for things, right? We, we see that in the, in the prayer that he taught his disciples. But if you're praying for something and you're pleading for that, I get that. I pray for the salvation of my children regularly. But there are things that I might pray for and you might pray for and he is silent. And in, when he is silent, are you going to rest in the confidence that he is good, that he loves you, and that he knows what is best for you? That may mean you don't get the job that you were hoping for. 
That may mean you don't have what you think will make you happy. Well, guess what? The only true source of happiness is Christ and Christ alone. Philippians 4.19, and my God, what, will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He'll give you what you need. He'll give you what you need spiritually, and he'll give you what you need in this life. Finally, last thing, keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. At the end of that passage on anxiety in Matthew chapter 6, it talks about anxiety, right? You know that you're familiar with that passage, correct? And in that passage, as Jesus is talking, he says, look, if, the, if God takes care of the birds of the field, how much more will he not, what, take care of you? Right? Is that what he says? And then he talks about the clothing, the, the flowers of the field, and how he's done that, and Solomon wasn't as glorious as that. And the point of all that is he will take care of you. And then he closes that whole passage and he says, but seek ye first, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And the question becomes, how do I do that? The kingdom of God, the righteousness of God are all found in the person of Jesus Christ. That is our hope. That is our confidence. And as we conclude, you've heard weeks of talking about the Ten Commandments. And every time we finish one of these messages, what do we say? Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Christ did what we could not do. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He never coveted. He fulfilled what I couldn't fulfill. And he lived the life I could not live. And so I run to Christ because I know I'm going to fail. I'm probably going to leave this parking lot, go eat somewhere and something's going to go wrong and guess what I'm going to do? What'd you do that for? Now I'm going to watch myself. But what's going what, what, what? Think about that. God has called us to what? Fix our eyes on Christ. Look to him who perfectly fulfills all that we could not. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is the one who forgives and removes all sin. Are you fixed on Christ? My hope and prayer is that as we've gone through these series on the Ten Commandments, you'll go back and you'll reread those again and again. And you'll look at them in a different way in terms of, what is my heart? It's a heart issue. What is my heart? Where's my heart? And then you'll say, I'm now going to look to Christ. Because Christ is the only one that can transform and give me a heart to love, to obey and to be committed and serve him with all my being. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this this time we've had this morning, for your goodness, your grace in our lives. Thank you for your word. Lord, there was a lot here this morning, and my prayer is that you would continue to sanctify us, Lord. As we've heard these truths from your word, we're reminded how often we fail. I'm reminded how often I fail and how often I need your grace, and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that you give that to us abundantly in Christ. Thank you for the hope that we have. Lord, I just pray now as we sing this last song that it would be a prayer of all of us. Take our lives, Lord, and let them be consecrated to you, Lord, for your glory. In Christ's name.
Let's close with the catechism. I'll read the question and you respond. What does God require in the 10th commandment? Answer, that we are content not envying anyone or resenting what God has given them or us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your love for us and for what you've done at the cross. And Lord, as we've just sang, I pray that that would be our heart's desire, that Lord, we are yours. We want to magnify and glorify your name. We want to live in a way that brings glory to you. Lord, I pray that on this 4th of July weekend, that as we think about where we are, where you place us here in this nation, in our communities, that God, we would be a light, that these things, although blessings, the greatest of them all is to know you as Lord and Savior. And I pray, Lord, that that would be lived out in our lives. Bless our time, protect and keep us, and bring us back together safely next week. In Christ's name, amen.